Philippians chapter 1, we're in beginning this new sermon series. We're just going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. I was telling Hannah that I'm just going to be preaching from two verses, and she was like, what? Just two verses? You're going to scare everybody and think you're going to take a year in Philippians. And I promise you, we're not going to take a full year. Uh, not going to take two verses every time. We're going to take larger sections. It does feel a little weird, though. We went from First Samuel, where we preach these long narrative Old Testament texts, to a letter, and it's very different, a letter of Paul. And so we take it in smaller chunks, we look at his argument, and we look at um, smaller aspects of what he's saying here. Um, I was debating whether or not to have you stand, because it's such a short reading, but it is God's word, and it is our tradition to stand. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is God's holy word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we need you this morning. We desperately need you. I need you. I'm a sinner, and I need you to work. Holy Spirit, I need you to move, because all I can do is speak words, but what you can do through the power of your word can change lives and transform hearts by the grace of the gospel. So would you move, would you work, and open our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was uh, in college, I believe, I came across a verse that really cha- transformed the way I understood Christianity, understood my faith. And it was Psalm 16, verse 11. I read it earlier in the service. That in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. I struggled with the idea of joy a lot as I was growing in my faith, and I thought that obedience to the Lord came at the expense of joy. That serving God came at the expense of joy. That he, it would be this thing I would have to sacrifice. I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel joy. It would, it would be something I would have to suffer through. And so when I finally understood that, no, serving God means full joy changed the way I thought about my whole approach to the Lord. Because if you understand that, then you can do literally do anything for God. You can go anywhere for God. You can withstand any amount of pain, suffering, persecution, and still have joy and actually increase in joy because you have the Lord. And so if I were to, to define Paul's letter, as I was reading through the whole letter this past week and the previous weeks. If I were to define what the letter is, is all about, this letter to the church in Philippi, if I could give it one word, it would be that word, joy. Paul is writing about joy. He uses that word kara for joy. It's repeated 13 times. If you're doing Bible study, often just look for the repeated words. If you want to know what, what a main point of, a, of what Paul is, is teaching on, what is he repeating? He repeats that 13 times times. 
And the letter is also about how joy is attained through knowing and serving King Jesus. That's how we receive that joy, knowing and serving King Jesus. And so as we go through Philippians together in the next several months, my goal is that as a church, we would be overwhelmed at that same joy that Paul is giving us in this letter. That we'd be overwhelmed at the joy that we get by knowing and serving Christ Jesus, our King. And so, this is a letter, as we get into it, it's a letter, it's not a historical narrative. So we're going from historical narrative where we're reading about a plot and characters and twists and turns. We're reading a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church, to a specific church, a specific people. He'll actually mention specific names of people throughout this letter. He's, re- he's writing to encourage because he's not with them. He is in prison, actually. He mentions his imprisonment several times. Yet he still has joy. How? You see, everything from his partnership with the church in Philippi to his ability to stay hopeful in the midst of imprisonment is built upon that knowledge of knowing and serving Jesus. That's what the, book is, that's what the letter is all about. So I want to keep that idea at the forefront as we're going through Philippians, that the heart of joy is knowing and selflessly serving King Jesus and others for his sake. I first want to give us a a little bit of an introductory comments about the letter before we jump into the two verses, um, before we dive into the text. We know it's written from the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he lists his name as the author, Paul and Timothy. In, the, uh, in this day and age, in the ancient, uh, in this, this world, uh, the early uh, first century, it was typical to sign your letter at the beginning. So we typically sign our letters at the end, right? All right. In Christ, Blake, or sincerely, Blake, you put your name at the end. They put their names at the front. And we see he's, he's, he's uh, giving Timothy a co-author level with him. So he's writing it alongside Timothy. But first, who was Paul? Who was Paul? Well, he actually gives us a little bit of a description of who he is in chapter 3. If you go down to chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, he gives a little bit of a background of, of who he is. He, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. So here he's giving his, his resume as a Jew, as a Hebrew. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Here he's talking about his past. He persecuted the church. He threw people in jail. He approved the execution of Christians, of which he was ashamed of, but he knew he had forgiveness of. But as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he was, he, he's giving his history, giving who he is, and he was an apostle, meaning Jesus showed himself to him. He called him to be an apostle, to be a teacher, and to be a leader of the church. They knew Paul, as we'll go to Acts 16 later. Um, that's where he met Timothy. That's where he met many of the people here in Philippi. Now, who was Timothy? Who was Timothy? Well, Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. He loved Timothy. Timothy was his co-worker in the faith. If you go down to chapter 2, verse 20, for I have, he says, for, of Timothy, for I have no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul's saying, Timothy is my right-hand man. He is with me everywhere I go. He is concerned for you and your welfare. 
And he says in verse 22 of chapter 2, You know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he served me, served with me in the gospel. So Timothy was, was right alongside Paul in planting churches and helping him. He loved him as his son. So as we look at this text this morning, Paul gives the Philippians and us three reasons that we can find joy in knowing and serving Christ Jesus. The first reason is because we are his servants. We are his servants. Second is that we are saints in Christ Jesus. And lastly, because we receive grace and peace in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look at all three of those and how they lead us to know and serve Christ and have joy. Notice it's all about Jesus. Notice he goes back and back and back to Christ Jesus. That is what gives, he is what gives us joy. Well, let's look at verse 1 and see what Paul is saying to this church as he introduces this letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. Uh, you may have a note in your Bible uh, where it says servants, and it, and it may say bondservants or slaves, depending upon your translations. I'm arguing this morning that it ought to be it's more accurate to say slave. Doulos, the Greek word there, literally means slave. And that was actually very common in, in that day to, to have slaves around. Um, I think our translations, through the many centuries of translating the New Testament, have opted for uh, servant because in the Latin, service, it came from the word service. But I think as an Americans, we like to soften that a little bit. We don't like to bring up slavery all the time, given, I think, the history of our country. And so we, we soften it, but we shouldn't. He's saying slavery for a reason. Slavery was very, very common in his world. 70 to 80% of Roman society was enslaved. 70 to 80% was in slavery. Here are some differences, though, if we think about it in terms of, we typically think, you know, American, the colonies, the slavery that that existed here. This was not race or ethnicity based. It wasn't based on the color of your skin. It wasn't based on the country it came from. Often, uh, it was POWs, the prisoners of war. Often, you gained freedom by the age of 30. You could gain your freedom pretty quickly. And a lot of times, people went into slavery to get out of debt. And so once they served their time, got out of debt, they were then out of slavery. But slavery, although very different from context in America, it did exist. And it was an ownership or master-slave relationship. And so he's using this word that, that I and Timothy are slaves of Christ Jesus. He's doing that intentionally to remind them of the authority Christ has over them as servants, and that they have an authority as leaders in the church because Christ has won them as his slaves. They're living proof, as Dennis Johnson writes, they are living proof that those whom Jesus saves, he enslaves. That, and that's true for all Christians. Those whom are saved are enslaved by Jesus. I'm going to talk about why that's good news in a second. I know you're, I know you're, you're feeling uh, agitated about that. Why, again, why does he use this word for, for this church? 
He's trying to show them what joyful slavery looks like in a church that isn't so bad. If you notice, Philippians is a very positive book. He doesn't have a lot of division to address. If you go to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, there's a lot of problems in Corinth. Not as much here in Philippi. There are some tensions. There are some friction and possible disunity that he'll address later. And so what he's trying to show them is, this is what joyful slavery to Christ looks like up close and personal. Timothy and Paul, slaves of Christ Jesus. Why, now, why is, is that good news to be a slave of Christ? Well, the truth is we all will serve some master. You and I will serve something or someone. Our hearts, your heart and my heart, was designed to submit and be subdued, to serve. So the master you could serve could be success, money, what money could buy, affection, romance, reputation, respect, people's opinions. Every master other than Jesus will use you and then throw you away when you're no longer useful to it. That's why, you know, sometimes we get into this thinking in our lives that we can sort of dabble with sin. We can say, okay, I'm, I know this is wrong, but just a little bit. It won't harm me. Now, the reason that's always a trap is not as much that the sin wants to entrap us, it's that our heart wants to be mastered by it. Our heart is designed to be subdued. It's to be, to be, to be a servant of something. And so when we think we can dabble with a sin, our heart says, no, 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 I want it. I want to be subdued by it. I want to be mastered by it. That's how our hearts were designed. Our hearts will always seek a master. Dennis Johnson writes, when we realize that we all serve one master or another, and that other masters inevitably abuse and fail us, suddenly we find that there is nothing as liberating as being a slave of King Jesus. Being a slave of King Jesus. So ask yourself this morning, how would seeing yourself as a slave of Jesus, a slave of of Christ Jesus, change your view, say for example, the church and your participation in the church? If you see yourself as a slave of Jesus, someone who you're to serve and to follow all your days, how does it change your view of how you serve in the church, his body. How would your personal and family priorities change if you saw yourself as a slave of Jesus Christ? Where service to him is not optional, but it's, it's serving your master. It's your Lord who tells you to obey him. So ask yourself this morning, do you live as a slave of Christ? Is he your master really? Or are you putting yourself under someone else's lordship? Are you putting yourself in submission to another master? And so how, do you, how would you know that? How would you know what you're doing? Well, whom do you seek to please in this world? Who do you seek to please? What do you spend most of your time on? Where do you spend most of your time doing? Where does most of your money go? How do you spend your money? What do you most deeply want? And if you didn't get, would just destroy you. What do you most deeply want? If those answers don't somehow lead you, if those answers lead you away from Christ, 
then he's not your master. You have competing masters. And you've been mastered, or you're, you're about to be mastered by something else or someone else. And then we call that idolatry. We call that idolatry. So what's your heart being captivated by? Your heart's always seeking a master. So that's how he begins this letter. He, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Not just that, the Paul, that Paul and Timothy are servants, but all of us are servants. All of us are slaves of Christ Jesus. And now he turns it out and he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with overseers and deacons. Let's take that look like word by word, phrase by phrase. To all the saints, to all. He's addressing the entire church. He's not just, he's not just writing this to one or two people. He's, he's writing it to everyone in the church. This letter is for everyone. This letter's for everyone. And it's a reminder that all of God's word is for all of God's people. You know, this letter, when they received it, and they would meet on a Sunday to worship, the whole letter would have been read to the church from Paul. And so it's a good reminder that, you know, as I'm going to preach it in small chunks, we need to remember the entire letter. So I'll give you the homework today of going home, read the entire letter. It's not long, four chapters. You can do it. You can probably do it in less than 10 minutes. That's how it was designed to be heard and, and read and, and understood. It's also, um, to, when he says to all, he's reminding us of our unity. He's reminding us of our command to love one another. And that's not always easy. We don't always like one another, do we? But we're not commanded really to like one another. We're, we're commanded to love one another. We're commanded to love one another. We may say to ourselves sometimes, maybe you've said this to yourself here at Hope, I really find it easy to serve with these people, these saints, and give thanks for these saints over here, and pray for these saints over here, but, but they're these other people over here. We rub each other the wrong way. You know, and so we're just going to give each other space. I'm just going to give each other some distance, and... Um, that's not what we're called to do. We are called to all, to all the saints. You know, in Philippi in that day and age, there was no other church that you could go to. You couldn't church hop. You couldn't try another church. You couldn't go to that other, you couldn't go to the Pentecostal church of Philippi. There was none. There was no Baptist church, right? There was only the Presbyterian church in, in Philippi, okay? You just had to go there, Sorry. You know, when things don't go our way, it's easy to cut ties, isn't it? It's easy to cut ties and move on to the next congregation rather than staying and working through hurt feelings and competing visions. That is a, a huge mantra today. If you are in a relationship with someone and it's, and it's hard and difficult, cut ties. Leave them behind. Don't work on the relationship. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to work on it in the church. So ask yourself, are there any saints in Christ Jesus whom you have trouble loving as brothers and sisters here? And how are you going to love them? How are you going to show them that you love them? Last year, the women's conference, they had a really good teacher. Her name was Megan Hill. Megan Hill, and she uh, has this article I ran across, and it says, you can't be a saint by yourself. Right? We are saints together. 
And she writes this, the pews of every church in every age in every part of the world are filled with people in different stages of spiritual maturity. We worship with people whose Bibles are tattered from use and with people who still need help finding the minor prophets, right? Hey, I struggle finding Obadiah sometimes. We join our prayers with people who have been praying fervently for a lifetime and with people who are just learning to pray. We sing alongside people who know every hymn by heart and with people singing them for the very first time. We sit under preaching with occasional doubters and with founding church members and with spiritual newborns hungry for the food. But our fundamental identity is that we are holy. The saints are the church. The saints are us. And that is what it means to be a saint. What is a saint? It's a holy one. A set apart one. And notice, this is a title he uses for the whole church. If you are in the church, if you are in Christ, if you believe in him, you are holy. You are set apart. Jerry Bridges writes, sainthood is not a spiritual attainment. It's not something you achieve. Or even a recognition of such attainment It's rather a state or status into which God brings every believer. All Christians are saints. It's not something you can attain. Do you realize that you're a saint this morning? That it's not just a title reserved for precious little old church ladies. Right? Oh, she's a saint. Yep, she's precious, little. Uh, She's old, sorry, seasoned. And she's a lady, so she's a saint. No, no. Every believer of Christ is a saint and has that title, Holy One. But you may, be, you, know, you may be thinking, well, Blake, I don't feel very saintly. I don't refer to myself as a saint. I don't think of myself in that way. I, I've got remaining sin. I struggle. I don't feel very saintly. How can this be then if we're sinners? Well, let's follow Paul's words and realize that we're in Christ. That's how you know you can be a saint. Saints in Christ Jesus, he says, who are at Philippi. So in Christ Jesus, very important phrase. You see it all throughout this letter, in particular 20 times he uses some variation of this idea of in Christ, that we are in Christ. It's about identity. As a believer, you are in Christ. What does that mean? Well, it's Paul's shorthand for the truth that men and women, boys and girls, who trust in Jesus are bound tight to him. If you trust in Jesus, you are bound to him. So that his obedience and his sacrifice and his resurrection become yours. That's how you're a saint. Because you're in Christ. Alistair Begg says it like this. This is the real question. Am I in Christ? Not, am I in church? It's good to be in church, but you can be in a garage and not become a car. You can be in hospital, but not become a doctor. You can be in church and not become a Christian. You can be in a restaurant and die of starvation. That's the question. It's to this end that we labor and serve to present every man and woman mature in Christ Jesus.
That's the whole burden and emphasis of Paul's ministry, to present everyone in Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you trusting in him? And he says at Philippi, and this is a great time to think about a few of the people who he interacted with when he first went to Philippi. So if you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 16. And we're going to look at some of these examples of who are the people he met and who became saved under his ministry. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. So Paul makes his way to this area, Philippi. It's a Roman colony. So many Gentiles, not much of a presence of even uh, Jewish people there. There was no synagogue. So in verse 13, Acts 16, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. See, no synagogue, so they went down to the riverside to see if there were a place of prayer. And they sat down and spoke to the women who'd come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And this is what happened to Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then, after she was baptized, her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You see, Lydia was this wealthy merchant. She sold sold purple goods. This would have been a very wealthy uh, business for her. So she had this home probably a lavish home, that she then invited them into. The Lord opened her heart. She was the first convert in Philippi. And so as we're reading Philippians, think about it. Is Lydia here? Is she still in the congregation? Is she still having people over at her home, being hospitable and using her resources for the church? The second person we see whose life has changed is in verse 16 of Acts 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who'd had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So she had this evil spirit of divination in her that was annoying Paul greatly, right? And so he cast this spirit out and changed her life. And she was no longer, she was a slave of these men. And she was obviously no good to them at that point. So the implication is that she was freed. You know, was she still in this church as she's receiving Philippians, this letter from Paul? The third person we read about in Acts 16 is the jailer. Is the jailer, see, Because of this incident with the slave girl, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. 
And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And so they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, and he took them, listen to this, he took them in the same hour and night, at night and washed their wounds and was baptized at once, he and all his family. Isn't that amazing scene? Paul and Silas, freed from prison, this earthquake happens. The, the jailer, right? if you were to lose all the prisoners, you're done. So he's thinking, I've got, I'm going to end it now before I get executed anyway, anyways by my bosses. About to kill himself. Paul says, stop. No, we're all here. This is enough for the jailer to get down on his knees and say, how, must, how can I be saved? And he is saved that day as he trusts in Christ Jesus. And not only that, he cleans Paul's wounds. Think about it. They were beaten badly. He cleans him, washes him. Is he in that congregation in Philippi, hearing this letter with his family, this jailer who is now a follower of Christ? These are the types of people who were receiving this letter, this, this young church. And as we go back to the Philippians he continues and says, those who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So we see that they've established a church uh, authority structure. There's overseers, which is uh, the same idea as elders. So elders and deacons. It's a reminder that there is an authority structure. There are authority of leaders here. Deacons, what were they to do? Well, they were to lead servants who cared for the physical needs of the church. And then you had the overseers and el- or elders who were to to oversee the spiritual needs of the church, to lead the church in the word of God. So the, the question for us is, as we see that, as he's addressing these, these leaders, overseers and deacons, do we honor and heed the shepherds and the servants in whose care God has placed over you, over your spiritual well-being? Do you pray for them? Do you encourage them? Do you respect them as they protect the church's unity and purity? And the word to leaders is this, as Paul is addressing the Philippian leaders, the reminder that you are under the authority of Christ too. All the leaders are enslaved to Christ. And so the leaders, he's addressing them because the leaders become this potential solution to the problem of the disunity that we often see in churches. If there's disunity amongst the leaders, there's going to be disunity amongst the body. And so they're reminded and they're called out in the beginning of this letter um, because they're very important to that unity. So to all the saints, he addresses all the saints. And then he ends in verse 2 with this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our third idea this, this morning, that we receive grace and peace from Christ Jesus. So Christ gives us grace. Let's first start there. Christ brings us grace. Alistair Begg says, grace comes first. It needs to, because you'll never know peace unless you know grace. You'll never know peace unless you know grace. Brothers and sisters, if we feel that we've graduated from grace, that we don't need grace, that we don't need God's forgiveness, we'll also graduate from peace. We're not going to have much peace. First between us and God and then with other people. Grace is a gift from God. Remember grace, the definition of grace is unmerited favor. 
Right? It's something we do not earn, something we do not deserve, grace from God. And, and so we've received that from God if we trust in Christ, but what does it mean to then greet someone with the grace of God as he's doing here? What does it mean to greet someone with grace, with the grace of Christ? Well, as you greet people in your daily life, as you call them, text them, meet them here in the church, remember, if you're meeting someone with grace, you'll meet people in their need. That's really what it means. You'll know that someone is needy, and they need help, and they're not perfect, and that they're a sinner, and that you come to them in, in humble ways, knowing that you received that same grace. And it's through that grace that he then gives us peace. That he gives us peace. What does it look like to give the peace of Christ to someone? I grew up in churches, I don't know if you have, where uh, you actually pass the peace of Christ. Where you, you have time in the service where you, where you said, peace, be, peace of Christ be with you and also with you. Um, we haven't done that here. I don't know if you want to or not. <laughs> Come talk to me later if you do. <laughs> um, I kind of found it awkward a little bit to do that, but... Um, but it's a good practice to remind ourselves that we can greet each other with the peace of Christ. To remind each other that we have peace given to us. Dennis Johnson says, The peace that Christ secured for us frees us to pay the price of making peace and keeping peace with others around us, putting the needs and interests of others over our own. If you have peace with God, you can then grant that peace to others and put their interests above your own. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 7. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Doulos. That's the heart of the gospel right there. How do we become servants who give grace and peace to each other? Jesus became a servant, a slave, to grant us grace and peace. You ever asked yourself, why did Jesus go through with it? Why did he do it? Well, what drove Jesus to go the distance I've always loved Hebrews 12, verse 2. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. The joy that was set before him. Jesus was driven by joy. And we've often speculated, what was that joy? What were that? And some people think, well, it was, it was the body of Christ. It was the people he was going to save. That, that's part of it. It was, it was also the obedience to, to God his Father. That was also a joy. It was the salvation he was going to achieve for his people. That is what caused Jesus joy to bear the cross, to despise the shame, and now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus was driven by joy, and that's how we're going to be driven in service to God. That's how we're going to endure as I conclude, I want to remind you of this truth. That God saves you with the goal of transforming you and others. And it happens through delighting in God's glory. Delighting in who he is. We talked about already the people's lives that were transformed. God wants to do the same thing through your life, 
through this church's ministry. He wants to change people's lives. Now, I began talking about slavery in the beginning, and I want to circle back and think about the slavery in America's context as well and how the gospel overcame the animosity of of chattel slavery here in America. That, That isn't it amazing to think that even with the evils of, of slavery, the gospel was proclaimed and believed and trusted from the, from the slave believing in the master's God. That, that they took on that belief that the power of the gospel transcended the evil of the slavery we've seen even in, in our own country. That despite caste and castigation, slaves came to Jesus. It's inexplicable apart from the power of the gospel. There's a book called God Struck Me Dead by Clifton Johnston, Johnson. And it, it recalls these slave conversion stories in the colonies. And one slave recalled this. He says, I, I saw in a vision myself in two bodies, uh, a little body in, or a young body and an old body. And my old body was dangling over hell and destruction. And a voice said to me, my little one, I've cleansed you of all iniquity. By grace you are saved. And it's not of yourself, but the gift of God. Right? Ephesians 2.8. Weep not, for you are a new child. Abide in me and you will never fear. And then I looked in the distance and I saw the rejoicing and singing. And he concludes, I know that I've been dug up and made alive and my soul made satisfied, right? Isn't that a beautiful story of, of the boundaries and the barriers that the gospel will break through? Even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of human sin to transform lives. And, and, and he does it through making us satisfied in him and what Christ has done to save us. So that's what we're going to see, how Paul will unpack this joy, this rejoicing in Christ Jesus as the, the foundation of the truth of, of the church in Philippi, that that is how they're going to last, and that is how we are going to continue in our faith and as a church, as we trust in him. Would you pray with me? Father, it's amazing to think about how awesome, powerful the gospel is. You've opened our eyes to, first of all, our need for you, Christ, our, our need for salvation, and what Christ has done to save us. His perfect, finished work on the cross, his perfect life lived, and his powerful resurrection. Give us resurrection hope, Father, for the days ahead to proclaim your excellencies in this dark world that needs you so desperately. Be with us. Encourage us this day as we rely and trust upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.